As I drove through 14 U.S. states in July, I came across many highway signs enticing me to stop and eat at restaurants and fast food joints with the best hamburgers or the best barbecue or the best fried chicken. Everyone was advertising their best. One gas station even advertised that they had the best and cleanest toilets. Here in Texas, people will incessantly argue if Sonic's or Whataburger or In-N-Out Burger is the best hamburger fast food place. And they will defend their position using subjective evidence like they have the tastiest fresh cut fries or the smoothest shakes or the freshest patties or the softest bread. But it's interesting that what is actually best is really quite subjective, lacking empirical data. What you're really saying when you claim to know the best is that you're really saying, this is my favorite in my opinion. And what you are doing is really just defending your opinion. When it comes to the good news of salvation called the gospel of Jesus Christ, are you defending your opinion? Are you defending what is really the best and only way to salvation? The gospel message is not subjective by any means. It is absolute truth. But you have a ready defense for the gospel when someone has another idea or opinion or in the context of the Galatians, a competing or alternative false gospel. As we continue our study in the book of Galatians today, we want to see how the Apostle Paul defends his ministry of sharing the true gospel message against the attacks of the Judaizers who are propagating a false gospel message by adding to the truth of justification by faith alone in Christ alone to be saved. There were three components to this ready defense of Paul, and how Paul defends himself may serve as a great lesson for us as we also have to be ready defenders for the true gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, as we take a look until chapter 2, verse 10. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 to chapter 2, verse 10. As you're turning to the passage in your Bibles, remember from our study last week, that the Judaizers were advocating a false gospel message by insisting that Gentiles or non-Jewish people, that the Gentile Christians also practice Jewish customs in order to be truly saved. In other words, they were advocating a form of works salvation. You have to do something in addition to believing in Christ to be saved. They attacked Paul's presentation of the true gospel message of faith alone in Christ alone, which required Paul to defend the message he was teaching. And he did so by recounting how his life was transformed and how he had private meetings with church leaders and elders in Jerusalem. Let's take a look at Paul's defense. Look at me at verses 11 and 12 of Galatians chapter 1. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not according to men. For I neither received it from men, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul begins this section here in verses 11 and 12 by proclaiming that the gospel message he taught is true, and it is the right one because he didn't receive it from any other preacher or teacher. It came directly from the Lord Jesus Christ himself as he was on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus. The Apostle Paul's point was that the gospel message came from the one who is the ultimate authority on this matter, the Savior, Jesus Christ. For example, if you're going to ask someone which restaurant serves the best Chinese food, are you going to ask a Chinese chef or an Ethiopian mechanic? 
If you're going to ask someone what place serves the best Italian pasta, are you going to ask an Italian chef or a Russian scientist? The point is when asking for what is truth, you seek the advice of the subject matter expert or the authority on the subject to see what they say. Paul said, the truth that I share is not from any other person, not according to men, he writes. It comes from a higher authority, the expert on the subject of salvation, and that is the Lord Jesus himself. But not only was it not from men, the gospel truth Paul presented did not come from something he learned by way of formal education. It is a subtle argument, but Paul's point was that since it was not learned, his understanding of the gospel truth didn't come through the lenses of someone else's bias to tell him what was truth. It was not something that someone else told him. He experienced it himself. Going back to the hamburger illustration, if you claim that In-N-Out Burger is the best burger in town and someone asks you, why do you say that? If your reply is because my teacher told me it's the best, so I believe them, people would laugh at you. Instead, if you told them it's the best because I eat it in and out 10 times a month, then you have something to argue. Paul says, I didn't learn of this truth through formal education. This gospel message truth was made known to me from the very person whom salvation is based, Jesus Christ, who died for all people. This true gospel message of salvation through faith alone and Christ alone came through a special revelation from Jesus Christ, the Lord who is the source of all wisdom and truth, was the one who gave Paul the truth of the gospel. Now, why do I belabor this point? Because when it comes to the gospel, the message isn't your opinion or a truth taught or gleaned by others and then passed down to you. It was given by the source and authority of all truth. Perhaps this example will help you understand the argument I'm making. Let's say that your friends tell you that Elon Musk is giving away a brand new Tesla car to everyone who shows up at his house and asks for one. Most of us would doubt that this is true. So what do we do? We ask them, how do you know? Well, let me give you a few options and you tell me if you would then believe them if this was their answer. Your friend tells you they heard it from someone else. Would you believe them? Probably not. Or what if your friend tells you they read it in a newspaper or in a magazine or on the internet that Elon Musk was giving away Teslas? Would you believe them? Probably not. Or perhaps another option, your friend tells you their learned professor told them that this was true and that professor is a PhD. Would you believe them? Probably not as well. But what if your friend tells you that Elon Musk himself told him then you would probably believe this unbelievable truth. And that was the point of Apostle Paul, that the true gospel he teaches is from the source of all authority. He heard it himself from the Son of God, God himself, Jesus Christ. His first defense when challenged is number one, if you're taking notes, number one, the declaration from the ultimate authority on truth. The declarations from the ultimate authority on truth. There are many ways to defend truth, especially the Christian faith. There is no stronger defense than to acknowledge the authority by whom the truth is shared. The gospel message is true because the Son of God, God Himself, Jesus Christ, said it Himself. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And then again, Jesus' own words, John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You and I can't necessarily prove, apart from faith, that salvation through Jesus works. In a way, the only proof is when you die, but then it's too late. Even the doubting Apostle Thomas wouldn't believe until he saw the resurrected Jesus. But Jesus' resurrection proved and affirmed that His death on the cross saves us from our sins and gives us salvation for all who place their trust in Him. That means the words of the one who died for us and conquered death carries lots of weight. And this is where Paul bases his defense. Jesus Himself told me, Paul writes, these are His words. The ultimate authority on truth, Jesus Christ, is the one who said it. So when you are defending or sharing the true gospel, don't base it on your own words or the words of others. Let others hear it from the Lord Himself through the Scriptures. Use the Word of God. Teach and share from God's Word. That is a ready defense. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Paul now reminds the readers of the person he used to be before he met Christ. He was a champion advocator for the Jewish faith. He was so zealous, in fact, that he did everything he could to destroy the Christian church, which he felt was a threat to his own Jewish religion. At that time in the first century, there were two rival schools of thought in the Pharisaic movement of the Jewish faith. One of the schools called Shammai, founded, of course, by the Jewish scholar Shammai, and the other, the school of Hillel, founded by the Jewish scholar Hillel. These two schools vigorously debated on the subject of Jewish ritual practices and theology, with Hillel more tolerant and Shammai more radical. Paul was most likely from the more radical wing of this pharisaical movement. He was pretty hardcore, as they say. Acts chapter 9 tells us that Paul went out of his way to get an authorization letter from the high priest to go around and pick up Christians, specifically in Damascus, and imprison them. For Paul, he didn't want anything to do with the Gentiles, even to convert them to Judaism, as one who was an ardent defender of all things Jewish. If there was one who would keep some of the Jewish customs and carry on some of the Jewish traditions into Christianity, it would have been Paul, this former Pharisees of Pharisees, as Philippians chapter 3, verse 5 tells us. Look what verses 15 to 17 say. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, to reveal His Son to me that I might preach Him among the Gentiles... I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul recounts in these verses how by God's grace he was called to salvation in Christ on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus. 
and that by his grace it was to call Paul into the gospel ministry to the Gentiles ever since his birth. Therefore, while formerly he was against the Gentiles as a radical adherent to the Jewish religion, God's will sovereignly played out that he ironically ended up ministering to them instead as Paul submitted to God's will. The main emphasis of this part of Paul's defense is that his ministry was God-ordained. If he had it his way, he would be persecuting Christians. But God had other plans for him, and it was to reach out to the Gentiles to bring them to Christ. This is truly a life change, and it came from the Lord. In verses 16 and 17, Paul states that he didn't need the approval of other apostles and leaders in Jerusalem to reach out to the Gentiles for Christ because his calling was so clear from the Lord himself. Instead, Paul went into an undisclosed location in Arabia where he most likely re-studied the scriptures. Of course, he knew them well as a Pharisee, but this time to study them with fresh eyes as he now knew the true Messiah is Jesus Christ. This would then equip him for the work he was called to do, which verse 16 tells us to preach Jesus among the Gentiles. After his time in Arabia, he went to Damascus. Let's look at verses 18 to 20. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to see Peter, remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. After three years since his conversion to Christianity, Paul goes to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. And he spends 15 days with them. He doesn't see anyone else. It was most likely an acquaintance trip, as they would have heard about Paul's conversion, but these leaders would not have met him personally. Paul mentioned this most likely to show that his ministry appointment came from the Lord and not from the apostles and leaders, since three years had elapsed from his conversion before he met the apostles and the church leaders. Look at verses 21 to 24. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. Paul then went on his way north to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Cilicia is the province where his hometown of Tarsus is located. Paul didn't spend much time in the area of Judea where there were other people preaching the gospel. Therefore, people in the churches in Judea didn't know him by face. They only knew of his reputation. And that was the most important thing. What they said of Paul was that this man who persecuted Christians now preached and advocated for the very gospel message he tried to destroy. And because of this transformative life change, the churches and the Christians in Judea thank God for Paul. The point of this detailed look into Paul's life was to point out that he had gone through a radical, transformative life change. That life change in and of itself was a defense of the gospel message he shared. The very message Paul tried to destroy as a radical adherent to the Jewish faith was the very same message he now preached without adding anything to it. You see, Paul's defense, number two, was that of a changed and transformed life. A changed and transformed life. 
This radical life change evidenced the trueness of the gospel he preached, having received it from the Lord. Paul admitted that he was the worst of sinners, and by God's grace was transformed. His transformation was authentic and so dramatic, his reputation preceded him. And the leaders, to the laymen in the church body, all were shocked but affirmed him and his ministry and praised God for him. Paul didn't need to debate with anyone who naturally wondered about his conversion and the message he preached. He defended the gospel message through his own life transformation. In the same way when we share with others about the true gospel message of Jesus Christ, it better be accompanied with a transformative life change. It is in this built-in defense of the message we bring that if we have not changed in our life and in our character, then the message we share will fall flat with others. You and I know that the reputation of a changed life because of Jesus Christ, goes a long way in defending the good news of Jesus we bring to the world. The defense of the truth of the gospel message to your friends, to your family, to your work colleagues, to your school classmates, and to others in your sphere of influence is through a changed life. That is your ready defense. People want to know that what you say is true through what they see and experience. You and I know that to be true. Our children learned this to be true on this trip. When we left for the Philippines for the U.S. in July, I warned our children about possible racism they may experience during our travels. Racial tensions were high in America, and added to that, the anger that the COVID virus, which had originated in China, had affected everyone's lives. And so I told my children... Don't let one bad experience color your thinking or generalize something about a group of people or ethnic race. Now, for the most part, we didn't experience any racism in our travels through 14 states. In fact, we were pleasantly surprised that we received two compliments from random people walking down the street for wearing our masks. It wasn't until we were in Richmond, Virginia, where we stopped at a popular restaurant in the African-American area of Richmond, for some good fried seafood. The line was long, so I knew the food would be good. We were the only minorities there. Everyone was black, and we were Asian. Now, I grew up in the South, so it didn't bother me. As I was ordering my food, I heard some commotion in the line behind me of a man yelling. He was yelling obscenities, and when I turned around, there was a six-foot-three-inch big black man yelling at me and, and pointing at me and saying, yeah, I'm talking to you as he spewed out some racist things about Asians and COVID and things I can't repeat. Everyone in the line just silently looked down. Now, I was angry inside, and I wanted to reply back. But as he was six foot three and I'm five foot ten, I was smart enough to defuse the situation by apologizing and then walked away. Apparently, he thought I was holding up the line. I was angry and hurt and realize that my Asia-raised children will now think that all black people are racist and not very nice and hospitable, which I know them not to be. But then two things happen. While waiting for my order, two older black ladies made it a point to come and sit near me and struck up a conversation. They basically told me how they appreciated that people like me would venture into their neighborhood 
to help their local economy by buying food at a local establishment. And then they said to me, don't mind that man. He's a fool. He should know that when you come to this place, it's always going to be busy and you have to wait. They told me, don't let this bad experience ruin your day. We appreciate you. You did nothing wrong. My faith in humanity was restored, as they say. I was so appreciative of these two elderly black ladies. I went back into the car and had a good talk about race and how you cannot point with a broad stroke everyone just by the actions of one person. The next day in Charlotte, North Carolina, I took my oldest, Andrew, and went to do three loads of laundry at a coin-operated laundromat. Usually these places aren't in the best parts of town, but we needed clean clothes. We unloaded our clothes into three different washers, and I went to go buy detergent at the vending machine. To my surprise, they were all out. I forgot to check before putting in the laundry if they had detergent or not, and I had not brought my own. It would be a hassle to take everything out again from the three washers and then go drive to a store to buy detergent and then have to load everything in again. Well, in the store, there were two guys, a white guy and a black guy, doing laundry. I thought, why don't I just buy detergent from them? Well, to be quite honest, the black guy looked very intimidating. He had on a kind of a gangster-looking red bandana, a rough biker construction look, and again, I'm explaining it through my bias lenses. And, and the white man looked more approachable. So I chose him to ask for detergent. But just as I was about to do so, he left. So I had no other choice but to ask the black man for detergent. So I had no other choice and summoned up the courage to ask for detergent. So I said, sir, I'm so sorry to trouble you, but I don't have any detergent for my clothes. And they're all out at this vending machine. May I buy some from you? I expected a no or a go away. That's your problem. But to Andrew, my surprise, with a sweet voice, he said, sure, go right ahead. Put your money away. Take this detergent for free from me. Do as many loads of laundry as you want with my detergent. And so we did our three loads and gave it back. Then I remembered we had some more blankets in the car that needed to be washed. What would you do? Would you ask again? Would you impose on this man's kindness? Well, I did. I asked the man again, can I wash my blankets? And again, he said, sure, take whatever detergent you want. I used about five cups of his detergent doing five loads of laundry. You know, being Asian, I said, he won't take my money. I want to bless him somehow. And so while the laundry was washing, I went to my car, found a box of unopened cookies and brought it back with me and approached the man. And I said, sir, you've blessed me. Can I bless you back by giving you this box of cookies? He said to me, no, I won't accept it. You just pay my kindness forward. I said I would. The impression it left on me was deep. But the impression it left on my son, Andrew, was deeper because he told me that man didn't look like the type of guy that would be very nice. We cannot judge a book by its cover. Then he went on to tell his other siblings when he got back to where we were staying about what just happened. I had told my children that not all black people are how they are portrayed in the media. 
Most all of them are very kind and nice. One bad experience in our situation was overcome with two wonderful encounters. You see, a message is corroborated with action. People want to experience and see change in you before accepting the message you share. I hope that shows you that the true gospel message you share is naturally defended if it is accompanied with a change and transformed life where people experience Christ-likeness from you, where they experience the love of Jesus from you, where they experience the care of Jesus from you. And this is what Paul tried to explain in his defense of the gospel and his defense of his ministry in the book of Galatians. Let's continue by looking at Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or head run in vain. Paul continues his defense that the gospel he preached to the Gentiles is the same one being preached by the other apostles by recounting his visit with them in Jerusalem. It was 14 years after his conversion and the second visit of his to Jerusalem, as mentioned in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30. The first visit was what we talked about in Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. And the third visit would be the one before the Jerusalem council, as recorded in Acts chapter 15. Now, on this second trip to Jerusalem to meet with the church leaders, it was because of a divine revelation to go. Paul had been brought by Barnabas from Cilicia to Antioch, and from Antioch they both went to Jerusalem. They went with the intention of sharing with the church leaders the message they were proclaiming to the Gentiles, and to share with them that it was the same message that they themselves were proclaiming, that of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, Paul didn't need to get the apostles' blessings, but he went so that his work with the Gentiles would not be undermined and that his converts would be recognized as members of the church and of equal standing with the Jewish Christians without needing to follow Jewish customs and traditions. It could be said that the purpose of this visit was to foster unity in the church by explaining that his mission was of no different from theirs just to a different people group. There was no difference between Jew and Gentile, as he would often write about. Look at me at verse 3. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Paul mentions Titus, who lived in Antioch during the writing of this letter, who was a Gentile believer and a faithful co-worker of Paul. So trusted was Titus that he would represent Paul later on to the Corinthians and then to the Christians in Jerusalem, and then to the believers on the island of Crete. Paul's argument was that Titus was not asked to be circumcised, which was a Jewish rite, which allowed Gentiles to be Jewish proselytes. Remember, the Judaizers were advocating that Gentile converts to the Christian faith still needed to become Jewish and adhere to Jewish customs to be saved. This could not be further from the truth. And Titus, being uncircumcised, but still accepted as a believer by Christian leaders like James, Peter, and John, who agreed with Paul meant that Jewish customs didn't need to be followed. Here we see that Paul's mission was authentic. 
It wasn't hypocritical. His actions were consistent with the message he preached. He didn't force Titus to be circumcised. He was on a mission to win the Gentiles to Christ. And he was authentic in how he did it. Verses 4 and 5. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. These false teachers had worked their way into the ministry of Paul and tried to impose Jewish customs like circumcision on those who had responded to the true gospel message. Look at the language Paul used towards them. They were using stealth. They were trying to spy and play the gotcha game to impose on the liberties Christians had in Christ to bring them back into bondage. It sounds terrible. And these were strong words to describe that what they were doing was through a very crafty and subtle ways to bring a false gospel into the church. But they were not successful because Paul didn't allow them to play their games did not yield one inch or give way because it would have affected the core message of the gospel. You see, Paul's message was consistent and his mission sprung from the clarity of the gospel message, not allowing any imposition on the freedom one had in Christ. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Let's say one day I say to those with hair that are colored neon green or burnt orange or hot pink, or vivid blue, that they are not allowed to serve or volunteer in our church, that it is a sign of rebellion and nonconformity, which you don't want to spread to others in the church. What if I went so far as to say that those with those colored hair may not even step foot into the church, and perhaps they may not be truly saved because there is no natural hair color that is of these colors? And that God would not be pleased. Would you be okay with that? I hope not. But the sad truth is that some of you may actually want that. You want a rule because you feel very uncomfortable seeing people with different colored hair, especially colors that are not natural. There are actually some churches, sadly, not ours, who actually have written rules that speak about hair color to prevent so-called rebellious people from coming into their midst. But my point is that subtle legalism, which adds to the gospel message, and that which Paul warns us about, will bring us back into bondage. Now, we'll talk more about the appropriateness of rules and guidelines to maintain order in the church in later messages. But for now, the point is Paul's actions were clear and consistent. He didn't yield even an inch to protect the core gospel message And ultimately, he protected his mission work with the Gentiles as they saw that he wasn't inconsistent. He was clear and consistent. Look at verses 6 to 10. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they are, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter. 
for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me towards the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Paul was saying the leaders in the church in Jerusalem were of equal standing with him as it relates to God's purpose for them. In fact, the leaders like James, John, and Peter, who were pillars of the church, didn't see the need for Paul to change his message. They were in agreement with him. Paul had a unique ministry to the Gentiles, like Peter had one with the Jews, and both were preaching the same true gospel. They acknowledged the purpose mission of Paul, accepted and affirmed it, and extended the right hand of fellowship. They simply reminded Paul that he should not neglect the poor in his ministry, which Paul didn't do, and in fact committed to reaching out to that sector of society. Now let's put it all together. Essentially what you have here in Paul's third area of defense is an authentic, consistent, and purposed mission. An authentic, consistent, and purposed mission. When you have an authentic, clear, and consistent, and purposed mission, it is in self a defense of your Christian faith. If you are authentic, you can't be accused of being a hypocrite. In the clarity of your mission, you have accountability. In your consistency, when you don't waver, it shows that you are fair and not prejudiced. In your purpose mission, you are focused and you don't waste your time or other people's time. You get right to the point. That is how Paul was defending the true gospel. His mission was authentic, it was consistent and clear. It was purposed. And so people couldn't find a loophole in his ministry. And my friends, they should not be able to find a loophole in your life and ministry as well. If people know that you are consistently living out the love of Christ in your life as a mission and that your life is authentic and transparent in how you act, that is a great defense of the gospel message through your life. They can't play the gotcha game with you because they can't find fault with you. doesn't mean you're perfect. It means that you say and you live out the same thing. You don't say one thing but do another, which a lot of people sadly do. So what is the authentic, consistent, and purposed mission you live out that serves as a ready defense for Christ and your faith in Him? When three things are used to honestly describe you, what will your wife say? What will your husband say? What will your children say? What will your friends say? What will others say? Maybe you can examine your hearts or maybe ask someone, how do they describe you? Can you be described as one who is authentic in his living? He is authentic in how he lived for Christ. Can they say of you, he is consistent in how he lives for Christ, whether at the work or at home? or in school? Can they say of you, he was purposed in how he lived for Christ? He lived his life in such a way that he had one golden mind to please Christ. Your life and my life serves as a great defense for the gospel message. How are you living it? Are you living it authentically? Are you living it with purpose? 
Are you living it with consistency? You know, it's very difficult at times to defend the gospel. But you and I, in how we live our life, can be fully equipped to do just that. We have a very ready defense just by how we live. A change transformed life on a purpose mission, knowing and embracing the truth that comes from the Savior himself. May these words serve as a challenge to all of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that we can take a look to see how Paul defended his ministry and extrapolate that and extrapolate through that biblical principles for how we are to defend the Christian faith through the way we live. I pray we would always remember that the gospel message comes from the ultimate authority. And so help us to be foundation in that. I pray, Lord, that you would challenge our people, that they would truly live out change and transform lives so that the gospel message would come across real and authentic to the people we share. And I pray that we would be purposed in how we live out our life so that no one can play the gotcha game with us, that the consistency of the way we live our life will show that we are authentic as followers of Jesus, that this gospel message truly transform. May the Holy Spirit challenge and guide. Bless your people who are listening to this message as we have heard from the Word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.